A cryptocurrency exchange faces a uniquely difficult fraud problem. A hacker who steals my credentials can initiate a transfer of all of my Bitcoin to another wallet, and it's a non-reversible, non-identifiable payment. So it is really important to prevent those kinds of fraudulent transactions. At the third Software Engineering Daily meetup, Coinbase Director of Data Science Soups Ranjan explained how Coinbase stays ahead of fraudsters, and he describes some of the cutting-edge social engineering attacks that are being used to try to steal cryptocurrency, including cell phone takeover attacks, which are particularly chilling. Next week, we will be airing three shows that I did on-site at Coinbase. These are going to be interviews with engineers from three different teams. You can check out those shows for a deep dive into cryptocurrency uses, the fraud challenges that Coinbase is tackling, and the infrastructure and security of Coinbase. Coinbase is a really exciting company, and it was a lot of fun getting a panorama for how several parts of the organization function. Now, this episode today was recorded at the meetup, and it's a presentation from Soups, who I also interviewed in the upcoming interviews that I did that are going to be aired in the coming week. Since this is a bonus episode that we're airing on the weekend, there's no ads. You can just think of it as a preview for some of the topics that I go into more deeply with Soups in the interview next week. And by the way, the next Software Engineering Daily meetup will be in New York. We don't know when it will be yet, but you can sign up to follow the podcast meetup at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup, and we'll be sure to let you know anything ahead of time, you know, as soon as, as, soon as we know, you will know when the meetup is, and I hope to see you there. So I hope you like this episode, and I'm particularly excited about the upcoming episodes around Coinbase that will air next week. All right, guys. So my name is Soups. I am the Director of Data Science and Risk Engineering at Coinbase. So how many of you guys have heard of Coinbase or use Coinbase? Cool. Wow, okay, quite a few. Awesome. For those who don't know, so Coinbase is one of the largest digital currency exchanges in the world. And the digital currencies that we support are Bitcoins, Ethereum, and actually starting today, Litecoins. So I'm here to talk about preventing payment fraud and account takeovers in digital currency. So our mission at Coinbase is to create an open financial system for the world. You know, so, so Bitcoin is essentially you know, powered by a public ledger system called the blockchain, which essentially allows you know, multiple parties to, you know, like, to prove that you know, whether someone who says they own this much money really are the true owners of the money. And they can actually enter into an agreement to, you know, send money to each other, etc., very efficiently. And now, you know, there's been other versions of blockchain which are far more efficient, like Ethereum, etc., which have come up, which allow, you know, people to write smart contracts, such as, you know, when the event X happens, then the person A should send money to person B, and all of that can happen in code, right? So that's a real quick high-level introduction to the world of digital currencies. Now, our mission at Coinbase is we want to be the gateway to allow people to purchase Bitcoins, Litecoins, Ethereum using their fiat currencies, as in you know, US dollars, Euro, pounds, Singaporean dollars. Those are the four fiat currencies we support on our platform. So far, we have helped 6 million users in 33 countries exchange about $6 billion in and out of digital currency. What are some of the common use cases? 
So cross-border remittance is a popular one. So I could, for instance, send money to my parents in India, you know, at a far cheaper, you know, uh, remittance rate, you know, much cheaper than transferwise, etc. All that my dad in India needs to do is he needs to have a Bitcoin exchange account in India, and I'm just going to send him bitcoins to bitcoins. That will go instantly, right? In the public blockchain of bitcoins, every transaction on average, gets noted down in 10 minutes, right? We are working towards speeding it up and make it even faster, but that's what it, where it is at right now. So the second big use case is merchants, they can accept Bitcoins with no chargeback risk, right? And the important point to note here is that with Bitcoins, right, it's essentially just a, a private key, 64-bit private key. That's what is, you know, that's where your funds are locked up, locked up right? So whoever knows that private key has access to your funds, right? Now, unless somebody were to actually physically coerce that private key out of you, right? If you have that private key, you have it. You, you are the true owner of the funds behind it, right? Turns out it's not really the case in fiat currency, right? Somebody could steal my credit card much more easily, right? Somebody could steal my online bank username and password much more easily and pretend to be me or pretend to be the person you know, who's the owner of the bank account or the credit card. So that's a very important distinction to remember here, which is why we say that merchants can accept Bitcoins with no chargeback risk. Coinbase has a merchant platform as well. You know, we power the likes of Kayak, Expedia, Dell, etc. You can purchase products using Bitcoins. And lastly, you know, Bitcoins and other digital currencies, they have spurred this new wave of alternative investment. So, you know, there are lots of folks who are who are really big believers into this new ecosystem of, you know, applications which are going to be powered on top of these, you know, digital currencies, right? So they are basically going to, they're all betting on the fact that in the near future, you know, the era of banks would be over, there'll be an open financial system, and there would be, you know, apps which allow you to do anything that you do with respect to, you know, traditional banking right now, be it, you know, peer-to-peer -peer lending, be it, you know, some of the examples like remittances or smart contracts, etc. right? So there are lots of people who are buying Bitcoins, digital currencies, etc. as an investment. So as I just said, huge day for us today. We added support for Litecoin, which is our third cryptocurrency. And now I am going to focus on the bad actors, but before I move on to the bad actors, I want to add a very important caveat. Majority of the, the activity on our platform is good. Majority of the users are using Bitcoins for purposes they really believe in, right? It's these few bad actors which spoil it for us or in some sense make it interesting for me, you know, because I get to go fight them, right? So now the same reasons which make Bitcoins so popular with users, right? That is their instant, right? You can instantly transfer Bitcoins and they're non-reversible, right? I said, if I send it to you, right? I can never get it out from you. I can never get it back from you, right? It's like cash, right? Unless I physically coerce it out of you, right? So the same reasons that make Bitcoin so popular for good users make it very popular for bad users as well. Which is why, you know, I firmly believe that, you know, all the Bitcoin exchanges in the world and Coinbase being the biggest one, we have the hardest payment fraud and user security problem in the world right now. Harder than PayPal ever did 10, 15 years ago. I'm a huge fan of how PayPal built its fraud team, right? There's lots of lessons to be learned, but everything that they had to do at that time pales in comparison to what we have to do because 
What we are selling is a 64-bit digital key, which can store millions of dollars, right? If I have access to, let's say, you know, thousands of credit cards, I can go buy like stolen credit cards, the best thing I can buy is Bitcoins using it. Because I can buy Bitcoins, I can move it out instantly, right? To a private wallet that only I know the private key for, it's not hosted on an exchange, and no one can come and get it out of me. So that makes it super attractive for fraudsters. Likewise, if I'm a fraudster, if I'm a scammer, you know, going after a Coinbase or any other digital currency exchange user's wallet is a super high target because once I get that money out of there, I can move it instantly to a wallet only I control, right? And, you know, no one can get it back from me, right? The distinction here, all of that is true with PayPal's of the world as well on the fiat side. However, on the fiat side, you can track money. Right? All these banks, they have built a way by which they can actually, essentially, you know, in some means or the other, call each other up and figure out where did the money go. Right? There's yet to be anything built of that sort in the Bitcoin or the, you know, any of the digital currency world. And that is why it's a lot harder. So now I'm going to focus on just those bad actors which make this problem really fascinating to solve. And I'll talk to you about how you know, we are solving it. So the agenda would be, you know, I'll talk about payment fraud. I'll talk about account takeovers. What do we do for detecting and preventing fraud and a few case studies? So payment fraud. So first of all, this is our sign-up flow. So in order to create an account on Coinbase, you have to provide us with your email address. And then we send you an email where there's a link that you have to click. And then you have to provide your phone number. You get an SMS to that phone number. You have to verify that SMS. And then you add your bank account or credit card, right? If you add your bank account, then there's two ways of doing it, and it's important to note this down. One is that you know, there's a list of banks where we directly support you know, for you to just enter your username and password, and then your bank would be verified, right? We don't store the usernames and passwords. We use a third-party service, which has all the clearances and the, the highest grades of you know, privacy requirements needed for storing usernames and passwords. So now the advantage for us is that once you actually give us the username and password, we know that it's, it is you, who you, you the true owner of the bank account, because we can pull the name and address behind it, right? There's an alternative way, which scammers love, also privacy-conscious users love, which is you could, you could actually do the micro-deposit method. You could actually, we would basically make two micro-deposits, less than a dollar each, into your you know, bank account. You go into your bank account, log in there, look at what those amounts are, come back to Coinbase and enter it, and then we know that you control that bank account, right? Scammers, PayPal. say that again? PayPal. Yeah, scammers love it, right? Because they know that once you know, they verify a stolen bank account using micro-deposits, we can't get the name behind the bank account, right? And this whole thing about you know, getting the name and the address behind the bank account, there's, of course, privacy reasons, right? In fact, it's impossible to even call up a bank and, you know, as, a, as a fraud agent and tell them, hey, you know, we have a customer of your bank who's created an account on Coinbase. Can you tell me if the account number, name, and address they match? They won't do that, right? The U.S. Patriot Law, I think, is one of the laws over here. It has made it so hard that you know, even to fight fraud, you know, money services businesses can't make use of the information that I think should re really be readily available. Because you know, in, at the end of the day, we're going to help customers, right? So now, what does fraud at Coinbase look like? So if I'm a scammer, 
I'm going to basically create a mishmash of identities. What I'm going to do is I'm going to steal Alice's bank account or credit card number, Bob's identity, which is driver license numbers, driver license card, as well as social security number, and I'll steal a third person Carl's mobile phone number. Remember, I said that you have to have you know, a phone number to verify an account on Coinbase, right? And then I will steal money from Alice's bank account, buy bitcoins, and move it out of Coinbase to a private address that only I control, right? Alice will, you know, a couple of months later, look at her bank statement and be surprised, alarmed, aghast that, you know, what is this, you know, row in my statement which says Coinbase? She'll call up her bank, which will then call up our correspondent bank. And in most cases, if we haven't done, you know, a few set of requirements, then we may have to return the money back to Alice, right? So now Scammer runs away with the Bitcoins. Alice gets her money back. Coinbase is left holding the bag, right? So therefore, it all comes down to if you don't solve this problem well, then you know, our margins will be you know, really, really low. So, and this is what is also one of our USPs, which distinguishes us from most of the other Bitcoin exchanges in the world, that we've managed to keep fraud low. Account takeovers. So the second thing that scammers love is account takeovers. They want to go after Coinbase accounts. Now, you know, brief primer on two-factor authentication, right? So you know, two-factor authentication means that you should have something you know, you know, which is a strong password, and something you only have, which is a physical device, right? So every time you get an SMS, right, when you are logging in anywhere, right? to your phone, it's actually meant to, you know, to really verify it is you, the person, because there are two factors that we, they are verifying, right? That only you should have. However, and I'm gonna, you know, you know take you down, like, very quickly down one of the, the most prevalent account takeover methods on Coin, at Coinbase. So, basically what mistake was made was that, you know, this something you always have which is a physical device, it was equated to a phone number, right? So the whole security industry said, okay, let's just send a text to the user's phone number, and then we will be able to validate that the user has control of the phone, because otherwise, why will he actually, you know, be getting uh, the SMS and be able to enter the SMS back on this website, right? Turns out, it's actually far easier to steal phone numbers than to steal physical devices, right? Far, far easier. So first of all, you know, there are methods by which I can actually read SMS online, right? How many of you guys have Verizon phones over here? Awesome, it's only two people, love it, cool. Please come talk to me <laughs> after this. Because if you have a Verizon phone, you can actually read all of your SMS online. Every SMS that goes to your phone, you know, if I'm an attacker, all I need to know is your Verizon username and password, that's it. And you know, if you have it set like a very weak password, it's probably already there in one of the password dumps out there. And I can easily read your, all the SMS that you've been getting there. In fact, I can probably also read all the SMS 2FA tokens that you get from you know, variety of companies in the world, right? So therefore, you know, like the fact that if I'm trying to really prove that you know, Jeff controls his device, by saying that, okay, the SMS that I sent to his phone number, only he could have seen it, it's, it's totally untrue. Because I, as an attacker, could have logged on to Jeff's Verizon account and seen the SMS 2FA codes he was getting. And therefore, without even stealing his phone, I have now you know, passed the two factors. 
please stop me at this point and ask any question. Take any question. How come do you use SMS for your side of blow up? I will walk you through all of that. However, a quick answer is our 2FA is opt-in, right? We can't force people to only use a particular 2FA method, right? And in some countries, SMS is the only method they want to use. In some places, they're not you know, tech-savvy enough that they will default to using an app. And the second answer to that is we've closed that loophole already. You can't Coinbase SMS 2FA tokens. You cannot see them on Verizon online portals. The second methods are, you know, like just SMS hijacking, right? You know, there's lots of, yeah, yeah. The third one is basically SIM swap or phone porting, which we have seen, you know, uh, increase in prevalence starting Christmas of last year. So this is how phone porting attacks work. So phone porting attacks are basically, number one, scammer finds a list of, you know, targets, you know. In this case, they find people who may hold lots of digital currency. And then what they do is they then try to find out the phone numbers of those individuals. That's relatively easy. You can go to Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, if you have it public. In fact, there's another far easier method. If you have Gmail, then all I got to do is I got to just go in and, you know, sorry, this was the next step. So once I find your phone number, how do I find your email address, right? I have to just, you know, go to Google and pretend that, you know, I have lost access to my email addresses, and this is my phone number, Google will tell me all the email addresses behind the phone number. And then I can basically go in and reset any email, right? Google, Yahoo, etc. Because most of them default to, you know, for account recovery purposes, the default to just sending a text to that phone number, right? So now that I have access to a user's phone number as well as email address, right, I can do anything, right? There's lots of, you know, Lots of sites out there which are, you know, password managers as well as, you know, 2FA apps, you know, which try to, you know, store your 2FA tokens online, right? They all are vulnerable because the account recovery process for all of them relies on, you know, making sure that no one has access to two things, which is phone number and email. If I as an attacker have access to those two things, even the most secure online cloud-backed 2FA method is insecure because security is basically the weakest link, right? In this method, by this attack, all of our fancy cloud-backed, you know, apps are actually at the hands of the telco call operator. Yeah, so this number two step is, is actually just social engineering. All they're doing is they're calling up the telco guys and they're saying, hey, I you know, lost access to my phone number, to my, to my iPhone. Can you just port my phone number from you know, this iPhone to this other iPhone, right? And they will do it, right? Sometimes they have a phone line which is open with the telcos like 24-7. There's a big ring out there which is just doing this 24-7. We have lots of information about them and we are you know, going after them. But yeah, once you have those two factors, you can do anything, and then they try to steal bitcoins. Of course, I have, if I have alarmed you, and you feel like you should not invest into digital currency, none of these are, all these loopholes have been fixed on Coinbase. You, know, you just have to follow a few basic steps. Number one, to prevent any of those account takeovers, right? all you have to do is use a strong password manager, you know, don't use, you know, weak passwords, which are, you know, your name or your kid's name, etc. And, you know, just use a TOTP app, you know, like Google Authenticator, Microsoft Authenticator. These TOTP apps 
they work as follows. So what happens here is that, you know, like if you guys have used Google Authenticator, you remember scanning a QR code, right? At that time, what is really happening is that, you know, it's really just a secret key that is not being shared between, you know, the Google Authenticator app on your phone and the website whose page you were scanning, in this case, Coinbase, right? So nothing traveled on the ether, right? It was just, you know, the fact that you took a picture. So there's no man in the middle here, right? Nothing traveled in the ether. After that, now that both parties, Coinbase and your phone, have this shared secret key, you know, they have an algorithm which basically generates a secret code. Every 30 seconds, a new code is generated. And the algorithm just looks at, you know, it's just a function of current time and the secret code, right? That's it. So therefore, you know, the code that you see on your app, you know, you enter it, Coinbase will basically use the same algorithm based on the secret key and the current of the time of the day and generate the code and try to match what you entered with what, you know, your phone generated. Yeah. Are there attacks that Google Authenticator is particularly vulnerable to or is it pretty bulletproof? There are some attacks it's vulnerable to, but I don't have details of them okay. off of the top of my head. Yeah. So going back to one question that we got from the audience, there's still, our, our 2FA policy is top 10, right? So there's lots of people who will, even if you tell them, please do this, they won't do it, right? <laughs> so there's lots of people who won't move to Google Authenticator even though they may be storing millions of dollars with us, but we still have to protect them. And now, you know, like the same thing that happens in the credit card industry where, you know, you all of a sudden are traveling and credit card company puts a ban on your card, right? So similar logic, right? So what we are doing now is basically we would detect that you, know, you are making a withdrawal from your account, you know, which looks very suspicious. And under those conditions where we identify it as suspicious, we will just delay it by 48 hours, right? And in the meantime, we'll just you know, email and SMS blast the user, making sure that they really did it. However, there's always going to be false positives, right? So this algorithm that we use or we rely on, it's it's a rules-based algorithm. It will have some false positives. And we don't want to annoy the people who were really legitimately trying to move the money out, right? So in those cases, we allow them an option to you know, say, OK, you know, it was really me trying to do it. So they can actually just click that button, which says, I still want to accelerate my withdrawal, right? And all that they will have to do then is to upload you know, a picture of their ID, front and the back, and take a picture of themselves, the selfie. And then we will match the name on the ID with the legal name on the account. So that it serves two purposes. The selfie and the picture on the ID need to match, proving that it is you in true possession of your ID. The name on the ID and the legal name on the account need to match, proving that it is indeed you who did it, right? Questions? Does yeah. that take away some of the value of anonymity in Bitcoin blockchain? Yeah, so we get asked that question quite a lot. So we consider ourselves as the gateway to between you know, Finance 1.0 and Finance 2.0, which is you know, Finance 2.0 being Bitcoin and digital currency space and Finance 1.0 being all the, the traditional banking, right? In order for us to be the bridge and in order for us to be the white knight in the space where we are still following all the regulatory requirements, we do have to collect IDs from our users, right? Now, you know, like the victim of the account takeover would receive an SMS or an email, and there's a new thing we've done. They, because, you know, victims would typically just write to us all the time. They were, they were emailing us left and right to support at Coinbase saying, I am hacked, I am hacked, do something, right? So now what we do is 
all the victims, they get a, an email and there's a link which says, you know, if you did not initiate this withdrawal, right, you can click this link and you can lock your account for, you know, until somebody unlocks it for you for, you know, by yourself. So without requiring a support agent, they can actually lock their own account if they feel that the withdrawal was made from their account, but not by them. So yeah, the second part of the talk is fraud detection and prevention. As I was telling you, you know, this problem of, you know, people using stolen credit cards or stolen bank accounts to buy Bitcoins, right? Hurts on margin. So you can't solve this problem using just machine learning alone or using human analysts alone. You have to use both of them in cohesion. Right? And I'll try to motivate that through the rest of this talk. Essentially what happens is, you know, human actions, they train the machine learning algorithm. So we have in my team, you know, eight engineers and seven analysts. The analyst's job is to just review the accounts. And, you know, if they see anything suspicious, they use the sixth sense to ban that account, right? Whatever actions the analysts took gets fed into the machine learning algorithm, which basically extrapolates it and then learns a new algorithm which we apply on the rest of the users going forward, right? So it happens in, in, a, in a closed feedback loop on and on, you know, and each of them help each other. We call our internal machine learning system as precog, right? And it's a supervised machine learning algorithm. How many of you folks are here into machine learning? Quick show of hands. Okay, cool, quite a few. So yeah, so supervised machine learning, binary classifier, there's two labels, fraud and non-fraud. The fraud label comes from two sources. One is our analysts you know, using the sixth sense. Second is when Alice calls up her bank and says this charge was unauthorized, right? Chargebacks, right? And then as a user is actually you know, doing any activity on our platform, we collect lots of signals. We collect information about their device, the browser fingerprint, about their location. And based on the email, phone number, ID, SSN, or bank account, behind all of them, we extract the name and address from all of them. And we bring the names and addresses from all these data sources, and we do mismatch detection, right? So now, why does machine learning work to detect fraud, right? So first of all, you know, as I said, we, we are bringing the, the names and addresses behind the, the phone number, behind the bank account, et cetera, right? And first of all, like, let's, let's set one thing, establish one thing here. In order to beat a system where I'm doing like a name mismatch detection across all those data sources, I have to be a real expert scammer because I have to not only, I'm gonna pick on you Jeff again, I have to not only steal Jeff's bank account, I have to steal Jeff's identity, I have to register a phone under Jeff's name, I have to you know, you know, create fake Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. profiles which have the names and addresses matching Jeff's, right? So yeah, doable, really doable if I really want to you know, go after one particular user, but at that point, the ROI for fraud should be high enough that they don't do it, right? That's our intent, right? Now, you know, okay, so now machine learning, why it works is because, you know, or rather, why does it, why do you even need it, right? If I were to just collect names and addresses from all these data sources, I could just say, okay, I'll use a rules-based system which says, if names and addresses don't match across any two of the sources, ban the user. But that will catch lots of false positives because, as you know, like we have different names or aliases on different places. Jonathan Kim, John Kim, right? So that's why machine learning is important because you want to, you know, still have high enough detection accuracy without by eliminating the false positives. So therefore, a common trick that we do is that we take the two names, we do some transforms like Jacquard similarity, but we take the number of characters which are in common between the two names, 
in the numerator and the denominator is the number of characters which are in the you know, union set of the two names, right? The second reason why machine learning works to detect fraud is because of the broken window theory. So these cameras, they're constantly talking to each other. They're exchanging information on online forums, etc. And you know, if they discover one method of committing fraud, all of them will come rushing through the floodgates, right? So case in point, there was a point where we saw this particular screen resolution, 1364 by 768, you know, its probability of occurrence in real life is less than 0.1%, but our agents, they were banning them at the rate of 55%, right? And it turns out that all these cameras were actually using remote desktop protocol from Windows yeah, to pretend to be coming from a particular you know, device type. And Windows RDP protocol, thanks to Windows, has a bug where you know, the pixel appears to be off by one pixel on each side. So this screen resolution does not exist in reality. It should be 1366 by 768. Praise be to Windows for not fixing it. Please don't fix it. <laughs> cool. So now how do we use the, the risk score? So we use the machine learned risk score to do the following thing. Previously, we used to say anyone above a particular value of the risk score will ban them. That just means that, you know, like if you were, you know, false positive for who, to whom we gave a high risk score, you can never prove yourself innocent again, right? You're just banned for life. So therefore, now what we do is, we just, you know, based on your risk score, we give you a particular purchase power. So even the scammiest of the scammers, you know, in some cases, they will get a certain purchase power, call it $5 per day. We will observe them over a period of time, and if you don't see any chargebacks over that period of time, then they have proven themselves, you know, innocent, right? Mm -hmm. if, they were, if they were false positive. Otherwise, you know, we just reduce our exposure. And in a lot of ways, we're just learning, paying to learn, right? Paying to train our machine learning model. Now, in our case here, yeah, this is a pretty interesting modeling problem where, you know, how do you decide, you know, people's limits? There's several factors which are baked into it. One is, of course, you know, how much is your purchase volume? So the more you purchase, the higher limits will go. How aged are your funds? As in, how long have we seen you be uh, continuing purchasing user on our platform without seeing chargebacks, right? So that means that we'll give you higher purchase power going forward. Thirdly, you know, have you passed certain verifications? Have you uploaded your ID, et cetera, right? And of course, there's all the other thing, which is machine learned score. As we observe the user, we constantly learn more and more about them, and your machine learned score also changes. So based on all of them, you know, your risk, your purchase power keeps evolving. One of the things which is quite interesting is that, you know, how, how do you take a look at metrics in a system like this, right? So, you know, machine learning metrics are like area under the curve or log loss, right? That's what you train your model to optimize for. However, the business metric we are interested in is basically fraud rate, which is basically, you know, dollar lost by purchase volume, right? This is actual, you know, that, that's actually our goal, and this is how we've been doing. We've been, you know, around our goal for the last... 10 months, right? There was a time when that was really, really high, and I'll talk about those times, those scary times. But now, there are lots of, you know, when you, when you design a machine learning system, there's lots of other things that can go wrong, right? Like when you deploy a new machine learning model, then this is what happens. Somebody went onto Reddit and was freaking out. What happened to my limits? People really love to watch the, the limits on Coinbase. They hold it very sacred, right? The lesson in this case for us was that, you know, we can't deploy a new machine learned model, you know, without actually doing a few things, which is, you know, like 
whenever there's a new model that we need to deploy, call it the challenger model, we need to make sure that the challenger model is deployed in shadow mode, and we observe scores of all the users as produced by the challenger model as well as the production model, and then we plot the distributions of, you know, what does it look like for both the good users and the bad users, right? So, and then if it looks all right, then only do we bump up the challenger model to production. There's another thing we have to do and we have to be really careful about, which is our whales, our high-value users, right? We don't want to basically, suddenly, because we just deployed a new machine learning model, you know, change the scores on them overnight. So this is an extra step we have to go through, which is there will be false positives. Just accept that, right? But as long as it's a handful of false positives, we then provide those false positives to our analysts who then go through them and just, you know, lock the scores for those users, right? So, you know, yeah, I, I wanted to provide a flavor for this because, you know, instead of going deep into how machine learning is done, but instead talk about how do you use machine learning in a business context because I feel like this is the kind of stuff that gets less frequently spoken about. So the next one is where does the supervised machine learning fail? So first of all, you know, the chargeback window is large, right? So we could be getting chargebacks, you know, up to 60 days for ACH, that is banks, as well as up to six months for cards, right? If you waited for that long in order to, you know, really look at our labels for the machine learning algorithm, that'll be too late. Fraud is highly dynamic, right? So you have to extrapolate what our analysts are seeing very quickly, right? And therefore, you need some unsupervised approaches, right? Like anomaly detection, related users modeling, and rules engine. Anomaly detection is basically, you know, what we do is we baseline traffic, you know, for every signal, we baseline traffic on a monthly basis. So let's say I want to track, like, how many people are signing up on Coinbase using Wells Fargo cards on a monthly basis, right? What fraction is that user population compared to the total population, right? That's the, the blue line. And then all of a sudden, the weekly line for a particular week jumps up, right? Then I know something is wrong, right? There's a scam ring. Somebody purchased a whole bunch of Wells Fargo cards online somewhere. So then we present those accounts to our analysts who can quickly zoom in and analyze those users, right? So remember, this is unsupervised. We haven't gotten any labels from anywhere. And we are trying to zoom in and identify unusual patterns, right? Second thing we try to do is related users detection, which is if I if I ban an account, then, you know, I will quickly ban other accounts which are related by some strong attributes like social security number, bank account number, etc. right? Because then they are likely controlled by the same individual, right? There's a probabilistic sense to it as well, where you can't act or we don't act automatically, where, you know, we just basically say every user in an n-dimensional feature space is this point, and we compute the cosine similarity between two points, right? And whenever we ban an account, an analyst is presented with a list of other users strongly related to this user in this cosine similarity space, and then the analyst can choose to drill down and take a look at those other users and choose to ban them or not, right? The third one is a custom rules engine. So our analysts, they, they're constantly using the sixth sense or you're using some of the other tools to identify what sorts of behavior is happening on the platform, and then they quickly create rules. They create rules and they, you know, delete rules as quickly as well because you don't want code debt in the system, right? So the rules could be, okay, you know, like if I see JP Morgan Chase cards which are being, which are using Verizon phones and from these states, then I'm going to, you know, freeze the risk score to this level which will reduce my risk exposure to that level, right? 
or it could be in some kind of conditions I want to have to require an ID from those users, right? The holy grail for us would be if we can combine all of this and you know, use anomaly detection to power creation of new rules automatically, right? So we are working on that next. Cool, so a case study. We call, call it the Verizon debit card ring. I'm picking on Verizon here. I hope there's no one here who works at Verizon. So Verizon ring, what they did was, okay, first of all, no PII here. These are stolen, these are Photoshopped cards, IDs, sorry. All that the attacker did was he just changed the driver license number. He was using stolen debit cards and he was using stolen Verizon phones to verify the account. Remember I told you, you, know, you don't need physical device to receive SMS. So of course, there's websites where you can go, receivesmsonline.net. You get a phone number, you enter that phone number on Facebook, you get the 2FA token on that website, you enter that token back on Facebook, you are in, right? Easy. Yeah. The other method is, as I described earlier, you know, I steal someone's Verizon username and password, I can see the 2FA tokens over there, right? This is our agent, this is a screenshot from that time, our agent, our analyst, he discovered this, you know, and he was like, whoa. <laughs> and then we fixed it. We fixed it. The fix was basically we had to find uh, SMS to a FA provider who knows how to send SMS such that it can never be read online, right? The solution existed. However, this whole bureaucracy of, you know, telcos, etc., it took us a while to find it. And the existing 2FA provider that we were using we told them as well that this is how you fix it so that we benefit the, or via them, the whole industry gets benefited. It took them six months to figure it out. And all it needed was a six-digit you know, code change from what I'm told. But a huge bureaucracy to figure out how to do it. So how we detected this ring? We detected it via anomaly detection. You know? So the scammer wasn't thorough. They basically left something wanting, which was they used the same screen resolution, right? And that's how we, we nailed it, right? And the risk engine, you know, it's automatically scoring and rescoring users after every action. The scammer reused a card that we had already blacklisted, and then automatically we reduced our exposure from $60 a day to 10, right? So therefore, you have the whole system, anomaly detection, automatic rescoring, machine learned risk score, all of them came together to you know, re reduce our risk exposure in this case. I just wanted to, in the last section, just show you a few IDs you know, and, and talk to you about how do you go about establishing identity online, right? So first of all, you know, it's you know, like all ID verification methods where you are asked to upload the front and the back of your ID are flawed, right? Because I have on my phone IDs of people I've had car accidents with, legitimately obtained. I could upload them and I could pass ID verification, right? But I'm not that person, right? Of course, it'll be legal for me to do that as well. Now, so one of the biggest learnings for us out of, you know, one of the biggest camerings was that, you know, that's what this camera did. He just uploaded the front and the back of someone else's stolen ID, right? So what we do now is basically we require a selfie, right? Where you have to not only upload your front, but also your selfie, right? And then we can truly establish you're in control of your ID, right? In some cases, even that is not sufficient. Right? In some cases, our agents have the capability to use a new tool that we built, which is we will even send a postcard in the mail to an address that we only want to send it to. Right? So suppose you uploaded this ID and we were still not convinced. Right? Then we will extract the, name, the address from the ID and send a postcard in the mail to that ID. Right? And you get that six-digit code, you come back and enter it on Coinbase. And then you can validate that, yes, 
you actually live there too, right? So, of course, yeah, in some cases it works, some cases it doesn't work. So, of course, yeah, you would think that selfies will only work with 20-year-olds. No, no, no. There are people on our platform, yeah, like far, far older who are able to use selfie. However, in some cases, you know, there are other attack vectors that we came across. We don't require ID verification for the lowest risk tier users, where the risk, tier, risk score is defined, is learned from machine learning, right? And also we don't require CDV. We do require CVV for most of them, but CDV for card verification, where you again do the micro deposits, we don't require that either for certain low risk tier users. Also, address verification, we don't require that for certain risk, low-risk tier users. So, yeah. We're constantly playing with it. Yeah. I, I really wish we had a central repository of you know, retina scans as well as you know, thumbprints, which any of us could access, right? Unfortunately, the US doesn't have anything just like that yet. However, India is actually leapfrogging the rest of the world there. Yeah. They have, they have, they're storing like 10 fingerprints and retina scans of a billion people. And it's built by a nonprofit. And the, the Indian government released an app in January of this year where anyone can call the database to truly verify who that person is. Yeah. Question? So uh -huh. a lot of this stuff is predicated on the fact, as you said, that these scammers will share stuff so readily with each other. Why is that? Why are they so willing to share the different mechanisms whenever somebody discovers a new route into scamming a system, they just share it with everybody else? Oh, so they, you know, it's, it's then somebody will build a tool and sell that tool. I see. Right. And That's one method. The dark web yeah. Or and some. GPUs to attack. It's not forums. It's, it's, there's darknet forums, right, where they're discussing all of this. They, will, they can buy. But they buy it as a service. Yeah. You can buy logs and passwords for certain people. And you can buy compute too. You can GPU. buy credit cards. You can buy. No, yeah, but, but, I, yeah. but I think Jeff is leading towards you know, the methods. Right? So I'm just wondering why these people are willing to share the methods. Yeah, the share methods. I don't think they're explicitly sharing for charity purposes. They probably are charging people by telling them, you know, like, hey, I have this proof. Look at my screenshot of Coinbase. I stole this money. You pay me $10 and I'll tell you how I did it. Right? Yeah. They usually productize it, though. But yeah. It's good guy. yeah. Like, literally, they build the tool for it. You rent the tool. Mm -hmm. you re if, you don't, if you don't know how to get the login password, you can buy identities. And then if you need compute to attack like blockchain or other things, you, buy, buy, you buy GPUs. You can buy they rent it as a SaaS. They have cloud available that's rentable. Mm -hmm. in China and other places. So you just pay for usage as a yep. SaaS service. Yeah. Question over there? Yeah. So just to answer a little bit of your question, once you use a tool enough times it becomes detectable, and therefore it's like you got your work out of it, and then you would want to sell that to other people. Yeah. You're kind of milking the cow. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. In, during the gold rush, the people who made the money were the ones making the shovels, right? So, yeah. and Wells Fargo protecting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Cool. So, I wanted to say one thing. I have two more slides, and then I can take more, all the questions at the end of it, right? So, one very interesting thing is, you know, this. You see that guy holding the phone, right? There's a new kind of attack that I didn't even tell you about. It's a socially engineered tech scam attack. Elderly people are called and they're told that, you know, hey, you got a virus on your computer, I can remove it if you pay me in bitcoins. And in order for you to pay me with bitcoins, you know, you have to go to coinbase.com or some other digital currency exchange, create the site, you know, upload your ID, hence that ID, right? Hence that ID, the only way we can detect it, 
One way is basically there's always a phone behind the ID, right? They are on the phone. The guy creating the account, the victim, is on the phone with the attacker, right? So yeah, so you know, another application of computer vision, deep learning that we you know, would love to explore, we've started taking a stab at it, which is identifying objects inside images, right? Then, you know, sometimes when we ask people to give us their selfies, right, you know, they go to great, great lengths. Sometimes, you know, you, 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 can, you can, of course, fake selfies, right? You can take a high-resolution printed image and put it in front of the webcam, right? This is what someone did. This is an image scraped from social media. We asked this attacker to upload three fingers and write the date and Coinbase expertly photoshopped over there, right? Our agents, though, found the identical image on social media. <laughs> and then, yeah, sometimes they do a pretty shabby job, right? <laughs> That's a Photoshop <laughs> happened a week ago. Yeah, I don't know what they were thinking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I covered a variety of topics, you know, about how do you secure yourself, how do you protect yourself, etc. There's one last thing I want to tell you, which is, you know, PSA, Public Service Announcement. If you're on Coinbase, right, then you're all set. Account takeovers, don't worry about it. You know, please create an account on Coinbase, trade freely, buy your digital currency, we will protect you. But there are lots of sites out there who still support SMS-based 2FA, who are not as you know, advanced or don't take security as seriously. We like to think of ourselves as a security-first company, which just happens to be selling digital currency. Right? So to protect yourself, please call up your telcos, put a SIM lock, Tell them you are already hacked, and no one should be able to port your phone number to a new device, right, unless you walk into a store and show your ID, right? That's the only way to protect yourself. And if you're an Android user or like Android, move to Google Fi, right, which is basically Google's phone service, because there's no call centers, no social engineering, right? So you, pre you prevent that phone porting attack vector. Second thing, but if you do end up being a Google customer, you are signing your life away to Google, which is now, if you're using Gmail as well as you know, Google Fi, then your two factors are one, right? Because if somebody now has access to your Google password, right, and you know, somehow manages to get access to, you know, you know, somehow manages to still port, they can still port your phone number from Google to another carrier, right? If they have access to your phone number, sorry, your Google password. So the most secure form of online protection that you know, we can think of is, of course, YubiKeys, right, as the second factor. If not that, then use Google Fi, but secure your Google account with Google Authenticator, right? Because if you secure your Google account with Google Authenticator, then they have to physically steal your device which has the Google Authenticator account. What's YubiKeys? YubiKeys are these micro USB keys oh. which will generate the six-digit codes, right? but you have them with you physically. It's what 2FA was meant to be, something you have, yeah. right? Yeah. Cool, so last slide. This is our data and risk team. 15 people, eight engineers, seven analysts. We're looking for machine learning engineers, data engineers, and data analysts. That's my email address, soupsetcoinbase.com. Some information about what I talked about is on blog.coinbase.com. Yeah. <laughs>